Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Joining us today is political philosopher Yoram Khazoni. Dr. Khazoni is the president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem and the chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation, a public affairs institute based in D.C., which hosts the National Conservatism Conference, finishing up today, in fact, in Miami, Florida. He is also a 1986 Princeton graduate. Amidst his work founding and organizing, Dr. Khazoni still found time to publish his latest book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, which has been making waves in conservative circles. With no further ado, let's dig in. Yoram, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Annika. It's a pleasure. So to jump right in, uh, in the title of your book, you allude to rediscovering conservatism. Why and how do you think that conservatism had gone away? And what is it that the American right has been practicing instead? Let's start with something relatively easy. The year 2020 was a watershed year in the history of America and the history of democratic nations. And it was the year that liberalism, the, the set of ideas that dominated, that, that were hegemonic in the United States, at least since after the Second World War, gave up hegemony. The, 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 mm. the control of those ideas collapsed. That doesn't mean that liberalism has stopped, stopped existing. It's still a powerful force. But the assumption that everybody is on board with with basic liberal assumptions is uh, it's not a reasonable assumption anymore. The, the the it looks at the moment like the the dominant worldview is this woke neo Marxism. We can talk about what mm-hmm. that is, but it's certainly not liberalism of, of any kind. It's something different. And on the political right, this has uh, opened up a a period of intense. Uh, discussion. It really started with uh, in 2016 with with Donald mm-hmm. Trump and Brexit, but is all the more pressing now that it is clear that an alternative is going to be needed that's going to be able to to answer the needs of the moment. And on the political right, this th- this has led to a- an attempt to understand how did this happen to us? W- where did it come from? Th- there's there's different views and there's different camps. And my view is uh, begins with the assumption that with with noticing that after the Second World War in the 1950s and the 1960s, what was called conservatism took up a lot of the the, the basic assumptions of this kind of hegemonic liberalism. So there were traditionalists, people like, uh, uh, like, like Russell Kirk or Robert Nisbet, who, mm-hmm. who uh, thought that a, a Burkean view of uh, culture as being inherited, as, as being handed down from one generation to the next, was the right way to look at politics. But a lot of people followed Leo Strauss and, uh, and his students and, uh, uh, and Frank Meyer and others who took the position that what Americans should be conserving in the United States is liberalism. And what, what they meant by that is that conservatives ought to be approaching the, uh, the, the um, 
American politics with the view that says all, all human beings are born perfectly free and perfectly equal, or at least they, they become so when they're 18 or 20 years old. Everybody and, uh, accepts uh, obligations through consent rather than inheritance or some other way. Uh, and that the purpose of government is to defend the individual freedoms and and, and equality that, that are ours by nature. Now, conservatives historically don't start in that point, in, in, in that place. The, the, the tradition of Anglo-American conservatism, you know, going back at, in my book, I argue at least to the 1400s, but probably, you know, centuries before that, that, that is a tradition uh, it's a tradition of political thought. It's a tradition of, of, of freedom, but it's not one that accepts any of these three cornerstone liberal ideas. I think the easiest way, the simplest way to get started talking about conservatism is if, the, if, if you're talking to somebody whose point of departure is what do we need to do in order for what we, the good things that we have to be able to be transmitted so that you know, five, six generations from now, th those good things will still exist. If you're talking to somebody who, who's, who begins by thinking like that, mm -hmm. then you're talking to a conservative because the, the, the whole um, apparatus of living a life of conservation and transmission, uh, which is capable of conserving and transmitting all sorts of things, you know, like a good constitution, a good religious framework, good interpretation of the Bible, uh, also individual liberties can be conserved and transmitted in that way. But what you'll notice is that liberals rarely, if ever, talk about what is needed, what has to be done in order to conserve and transmit. And I think it, at this moment, post-2020, it's a terrible moment. It's really frightening, and uh, you know, like you, I spent a, a, a lot of a lot of my life in in uh, in Princeton. I went to Princeton University, and uh, a moment in which a, a great liberal statesman like Woodrow Wilson, in 2020, he becomes anathema, mm. and his name has to be re removed from Wilson College, which is uh, the college that I went to when I was at Princeton, and his name has to be removed from the Woodrow Wilson School. And uh, you know, I'm no great fan of Woodrow Wilson, but you know, his 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 place in uh, the history of liberalism and the history of American uh, in American history is is vast and important. And erasing erasing his name means that anything can be erased. That, I mean, there's absolutely nothing that can't that can't now be erased. And so, th this is a a moment where many many people who have been sort of you know, um, committed liberals all their lives, I'm talking about both on the left and on the right, are, are beginning to ask what went wrong and what would you have to do to conserve, to be able to conserve and transmit things, you know, like the name of a building for, from, from one generation to the next. And that, that, that's, that's how we get here, is uh, conservatism needs to be rediscovered because at least by the year let's say, by, by uh, the time that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher left the scene by 1990, um, at least by then, the, the, the liberal, uh, the Enlightenment liberal axioms mm. that had been sort of lurking around in conservatism crashed through, took over, excluded every, every other concern, 
and and created this sort of utopian where you know liberalism is about to take over the world and end history and and that's over mm -hmm. and we 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 now need to figure out what 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 if anything we we can do to to help ourselves yeah there are, i have a lot of questions based on that uh, <laughs> but i guess to pick on just sort of one small detail I, i'm intrigued that you think that 2020 uh, specifically was the watershed moment uh because i guess having gone to college up through, I started school in 2017, um, it felt like all of that was pretty, pretty prevalent. Maybe I was just, you know, I was in California, I was in a bubble, but it felt like it all was pretty prevalent even before that. Do you think that the watershed moment, was it the pandemic or the 2020 election? Or what do you think was specific to 2020 that hadn't been happening before? The New York Times was not firing people for being liberals mm -hmm. before. Okay, in, in other words, I, I'm not I'm not at all disagreeing with you. The, the rise of woke, woke neo-Marxism yeah. is something that had been going on for decades. I mean, if you read Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind from 1987, I mean, he, he's basically already predicting it there. But the, the, the watershed isn't, isn't in the rise of the ideas. The watershed is that the, the moment that institutions that had been the, the, the core of liberal America, and in fact, of, uh, of developing and distributing liberal ideas throughout the world, an institution like the New York Times turns around and is firing senior employees yeah. because they're liberals. So, so the, the, the watershed mm -hmm. is, 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 it's the moment of breakthrough. It's the, it's the moment when, uh, when uh, woke neo-Marxism takes over the major institutions and is then in power and now, and since then is trying to consolidate power. So I want to talk a little bit about Enlightenment liberalism. Um, in your book, you talk about it kind of in two places. You talk about it, obviously, in the context of the Enlightenment, but you also talk about it as beginning in the 1960s. Uh, and of course, the 60s are long after the Enlightenment. So I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that for me. Sure. Um, when, when I refer to Enlightenment liberalism, what I'm, what I'm describing is if you if you if you take the uh, if you take the the political framework that's developed by uh, by Enlightenment rationalists, well, let me let me just be careful with that term. I'm not talking about this is not Scottish Enlightenment. We're not talking about the empiricists. I'm I'm talking about the rationalist tradition. Um, you know we. We can argue around the edges about exactly how it works, but roughly it be, it it begins with Descartes, uh, and uh, as it becomes a political theory with uh, with Hobbes, and then you have thinkers like uh, Locke and Rousseau and Kant, who take take these premises and 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 do all sorts of interesting things with them. So if you sort of take the average of that group of thinkers and and you take their political writings. What you get is uh, is a view that is forceful in its in its exclusion of tradition. Mm. In other words, the, 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 they're they're saying very clearly and and explicitly that tradition has been holding us back. That it's uh, it that each individual has to think for themselves. And they're also saying that if each individual thinks for themselves and ignores the guide, the guardrails, the inherit, the inheritance of, of what came from the past, if every individual does that, they all believe that it's going to converge on a certain set of ideas. 
right? Which is how how we get to uh, the idea the idea not only that all men are created free and equal and and that obligation arises through consent, but also that that that's the only legitimate basis that it's universal that it's true for every country and at every time in history and i i think i i don't think i mean that was for sure present in the american founding right uh in in thinkers like like jefferson and tom Paine and 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 others and uh and uh burke in his reflections on the revolution in france is attacking this fellow dr price who who is defending exactly exactly that that worldview. So it was for sure there at the American founding and it had an influence. But the I, I think that the the uh, American history or really all history up until the world wars is easiest to understand as a, um, a coexistence or a struggle between this enlightenment rationalism, uh, which claims universal uh, and absolute ap applicability and this vast uh, national and religious inheritance, which is which is traditionalist, it, uh, the, the the common law is a, is a tradition of how how to live. The the the, the Christianity uh, is a is a tradition built built upon a, a scripture, and those things the, the 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 American national and religious traditions continued to hold uh, the 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 form of American life in place up until the World Wars, where uh, what you see uh, this this is described in in Chapter mm -hmm. Six of my of my book that the, as, as a the trauma of the World Wars leading the uh, American right. European elites to say, look, we just can't ever go through something like this again, and uh, and it's religious and national tradition which is the cause of this. And the answer is a thoroughgoing enlightenment liberalism. That's going to be the, the sole basis. And um, some good things come out of it, like you know, the, the, uh, the, the effort to, to eliminate the perse persecution of blacks uh, in America is a positive thing. But I, I, I also think that the last 70 years have been a story of a a, a, basically a, a perpetual cultural revolution from the moment mm. that Americans say there's not going to be any God, scripture, prayer in our schools because we're just doing the Enlightenment rationalist thing straight. We're doing it pure. Okay. So if I could restate your views to be sure that I understand them, the, you know, the American founding introduced Enlightenment liberalism, but it was a conflict between what you would say is conservatism and liberalism until the Second World War, at which point Enlightenment liberalism was kind of given total free reign. And because it didn't conserve anything, we wound up with the woke neo-Marxist movement. Is that is that an accurate summary? Yep. Okay. Very good. <laughs> I, I wish all my interviewers could understand so well. <laughs> Um, so I guess going back to the American founding, because, I mean, you know, America was founded during the heyday of the Enlightenment. And so I think it's kind of understandable to most people why it could be portrayed as kind of a purely Enlightenment project. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk me through your views on two founders. Uh, one, Thomas Jefferson, who you, uh, your, your statements about in your book 
are a pretty, pretty brutal takedown. You say of the lack of his presence at the Constitutional Convention, he was in France, not America. You say that it was France's loss, but America's gain, which is pretty brutal. Um, and second, uh, someone near dear to the Madison program, James Madison, um, someone who obviously we at the Madison program dwell on a lot, uh, but you have a kind of a, a different view of him. You think of him as a bit of a, a wishy-washy flip-flopper, I guess. Well, look, to, to begin with, th this is not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not inventing this, this view of history. Yeah. It may, it may not be familiar to all of you, all of your listeners, mm -hmm. but the, the, the argument between liberals and conservatives about how, how to interpret the American founding, you know, and the, the, the glorious revolution mm -hmm. in, in, in Britain and the, the, the French revolution in France. I mean, the, the, this has been going on for a very, very long time. And the, um, for for example, the the the, the wry comment that uh, that divine providence was overlooking the United States, and we know that for a fact because Jefferson was in France and was absent right. for right. the the writing of the Constitution. Uh, that that was uh, told over to me by Gertrude Himmelfarb, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know the, the, there's just many other mm -hmm. conservatives. I mean, I, just to name name one, Connor Cruz O'Brien wrote a, a a really remarkable book on Thomas Jefferson called The Long Affair. Mm. And uh, I, I look, I, th I think it's as thorough and as careful a, a research work as any conservative has ever done on, on, on Jefferson. And, uh, and his conclusions are, I mean, they are, they are brutal, but there's, I, they're significantly more brutal than, than anything that I say, because yeah. uh, be, have, have you read the book? I've not, or no, no, read your because, book or look, read the other book? <laughs> no, no, the other book, because, because O'Brien, who, who spent years researching mm. this, and I, you know, I, I, I'm not that kind of an uh, expert in the archival evidence, but he, his, his conclusion is that uh, that people dramatically underestimate the degree to which Jefferson was committed to the French Revolution. Mm. That if you if you if you look at all the sources throughout the entire period from the American founding until you know to, till the end of Jefferson's life, then you see a very radical commitment to anti-traditionalism. You know, for, for example, the view that says. Uh, as Jefferson wrote in, in a, a number of his letters, that every generation right. is a foreign country to the previous to, to the previous generation. That we don't owe the past anything, and and we do better by reasoning rather than inheriting mm -hmm. anything from the past. So that that's a very radical view. I won't I won't get yeah. into what what O'Brien says about Jefferson as the the primary, the, the leading ideologue, pro-slavery ideologue during the American founding, mm. it, it's it's heart heart wrenching. It's stomach churning to read the stuff. Mm. So um, you, you're right. Conservatives have just never been uh, conservatives. The way I'm using the word, right. pe people who, who value tradition and inheritance, have have never been really big fans of Jefferson, and um, and. And uh, Madison is is much more of an in between figure because yeah. during those during those uh, five years that Jefferson is abroad, uh, Madison appears to switch sides. He hmm. he had been 
Jefferson's closest political ally. And after Jefferson comes back, he goes back to being Je Jefferson's closest political ally. But during those five years, he is a, um, he is a, a loyal and faithful uh, partisan in George Washington's attempt to uh, restore a, 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 a uh, re restore what's effectively the main, the main outlines of, of, of the British constitution, the English constitution in the United States. And that, that's what we get with the con American constitution of 1787. There were the, that's the second American constitution. Mm -hmm. The first one you could say was a product of pure reason. It was not based on tradition. It failed ignominiously. So the people don't, don't even remember it. And uh, Washington is one of the great conservative figures of modern history because already during the Revolutionary War, he's writing letters and saying, this can't go on. We have to have a central government like in, like in England. We have to be able to raise taxes. We have to be able to raise an army. We, we, we have to be able to sign treaties and be able to impose the terms of the treaties uh, on, on, on all of the states. That, that, uh, that's a, a nationalist view, but it's also a conservative view because uh, because the entire argument is we know how good constitutionalism works. We're Republicans, so we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to elect our, our unitary chief executive. But, the, you know, this, this theory that the French revolutionaries liked, mm -hmm. you know, where, 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 where you have a plural executive and a whole bunch of people sit in a committee and try to give orders, that, 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 that was tried in, in Pennsylvania during the American Revolution. And, uh, and, and Washington and his, his people just reject it outright. They mm. say, we're going to govern in a way that's a lot like the way that, that English tradition said we should. Do you, so I wonder if you could unpack for me a little more of the psychology. Like, do you have any ideas of why Madison would have flip-flopped like that? Because oh, I guess no. to me it's you kind want, of a surprising you assertion. You speculate <laughs> on his personality. Well, I just, it's just a surprising, surprising to me that it would just be like a light switch. Like, oh, he's gone and now he's back. You've never met people like that? <laughs> see, see here, here, here's know. the problem of being like an, an old man like I am. Like I've, right. <laughs> I've, I've, I've lived in, uh, I've, I've worked in, I founded, I've run, I've, I, I, I've mm. operated uh, institutions and, and uh, um, organizations for, um, you know, at, at, at this point, 35 years. And mm. uh, I think that everybody who has that experience and is, you um, uh, attentive to the kinds of people that there are around knows that the fact that somebody is you know intellectually brilliant or an incredibly hard worker does not mean that they are uh, solid in their um, in, in their worldview and in fact mm -hmm. you don't even have to run institutions I bet some of the people listening to this can th think about the current political situation that we're all familiar with and think of characters whose uh, whose worldview shifts drastically, you know, every couple mm -hmm. of years. Like, you you know, people like that. I'm not going to start naming them, but but <laughs> but there are people like that. Yeah. And um and and basically, I think if you want to if you want to see it uh, in a positive light, I mean, I'm not, you know, it doesn't sound very flattering, but if you want to see it in, in a positive light, um, mm -hmm. th this this kind of personality is somebody who is capable of immense loyalty. In, uh, in 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 making sure that the you know that the big vision of the person he's loyal to get gets mm. implemented, 
and uh, that's what happened. I mean, the the mm. the uh, that Washington becomes sort of the 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 undisputed leader of uh, of uh, of the United States during the war, and uh, Madison joins. I mean, that Washington had a natural political party of of uh, that later gets called the the, the Federalists. These the, mm. the sort of uh, conservatives, mostly people who didn't own slaves, they all ended up releasing their slaves. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm talking about John Jay and Knox, the, the, the general, and, um, mm -hmm. and uh, Governor Morris and, and Alexander mm -hmm. Hamilton and, and uh, John Adams. That, that's Washington's natural, natural, those are his, his, that's his natural political party, the people whose sentiments he basically agrees with and expresses. Um, and, and, Madison joins them and is a, a is an excellent faithful leader of 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 that group, but he's not the head of it. He's not calling the shots. Washington's calling the shot. Hmm. So I guess that kind of leads very naturally to another question that I had after after reading your book, because at least the way that uh, that the early early America was taught to me in my school, there, there wasn't really any parallel between the parties as they existed in early America and the parties today. But you draw quite a lot of parallels between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, and if not Republicans and Democrats, at least kind of the current configuration of who's siding where on which values. Can you explain that? Explain, well, explain why there are no parallels when 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 we make this no 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 explain explain the parallels that you see between federalists and anti-federalists and at least kind of political values or configurations today okay i look obviously any kind of analogy like this is uh uh you have you have to have a big caveat no yeah. no yeah. Anal no analogy is perfect uh, but if if we look at if we're looking at um National conservatism, okay, which is a, which mm -hmm. is the the name that my friends and I have given uh, the 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 post-Trump post post-Brexit right. uh, conservative movement. So this kind of nationalist conservatism is very very much uh, reminiscent of the, the the kinds of things that uh, that the American Federalist Party was uh, was arguing for. Mm. So to, to, to begin with, we've already said that uh, that their their sort of signature uh, piece of worldview is constitutional and legal continuity between uh, English traditions and American traditions. So that it's it's the Federalist Party that uh, that uh, erects the national supreme. Well, they, they erect the entire American government, but it's the Federalist Party that comes up with the theory that that the national supreme court has has inherited all of the common law and that's the basis for national law in the united states uh, jefferson mm -hmm. and madison were strongly opposed to this idea of this this continuity with with english uh, legal and political tradition so th that that's one one very big plank that that uh, you see in in contemporary national conservatism is it, it, is the attempt to make the best of the the traditions that have been inherited and often forgotten mm -hmm. and need to be restored. A second second important part of it is uh, the the view of the of the nation as, and the national government as as having decisive importance. And this is obviously you know not as opposed to the individual. It's not even as opposed to the to, to the states, but the 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 idea that national government 
uh, has a special responsibility to work, to constantly work towards internal unity and to, to an internal cohesion, mm -hmm. to, to balance the different interests and make sure that there's, a, there's an appropriate distribution of, uh, of uh, honors so that, that the, the different parts of the, uh, of the nation continue to feel like they're a part of it, even though, you know, obviously, uh, every political leader and every administration has its own, you know, has its own direction that it wants to take things. But but this theoretical commitment to uh, to bringing everybody together as a single nation, as opposed to you know letting it fly apart, letting the you know the states or the localities be free, that that's also an, a very very it's a it's a crucial aspect of of this uh, nationalist conservative worldview at at the American founding. And then there's other things that derive from it that are familiar, uh, the the belief that the United States. Uh, needs to imitate Britain in uh, mm. in its economics and manufactures, which interestingly leads not to a thoroughgoing free market view. That's that's actually the side of the Jeffersonians, mm. uh, but but rather uh, Ham, Ham, Washington and Hamilton have a uh, a, a view of of uh, the the central the national government as having a responsibility to make sure that manufacturing uh, industrial mm. capacity uh, the, and, and, and therefore wealth, but also the, the, the capacity to defend the country uh, are, are enabled. The, the, that's a responsibility of government. So, so you, you hear a lot of nationalist uh, rhetoric in, in the debates of the 1780s and 90s, which sounds an awful lot like the rhetoric today. And even on immigration where at the beginning, it looks like uh, Jefferson is going to be as skeptical of uh, open immigration and easy citizenship as the Federalists are. But in the end, what happens is that by the time Jefferson is is president, is president, he's the third third president. By the time he becomes president, he's completely turned around on this issue because he's figured out that most of the immigrants that are coming are uh, are, are farmers and not industrialists. And that open immigration is going to tilt the the voting balance within the United States. So, I, I mean, it's just it's just astonishing to be sitting and, and reading mm -hmm. um, Jefferson speaking in favor of open immigration and using the same arguments that everybody uses today, right. and then Hamilton attacking him and, and talking about how you know open immigration you know of people who who can't be absorbed and assimilated uh, leads to the destruction and Hamilton says you know just 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 ask the American I Indians what happens when you don't control immigration. <laughs> it's it, look it's just it 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 it, it just happens that that. Um, that uh, many of the same issues are uh, have parallels today, mm -hmm. and th there's more of them in my book for people who are interested. <laughs> I I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about uh, the kind of capitalist strain through that, um, because it seems like one of the criticisms of the way that Enlightenment liberalism, i.e., more traditional republicanism that's a bad phrasing but republicanism say of like the 80s 90s and early 2000s was that it was very hyper focused on like just sort of economics and gdp growth for the sake of gdp growth um, and there are some who say that that's kind of in some ways in accordance uh, with early america where there was a very intense commercial focus and an understanding that it was going to take really good economics to make the country successful 
Um, do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, I, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure whether I agree or or I don't agree. I mean, certainly the the um, uh, the, the the period of the American founding is uh, sees the flowering of a, a, a of liberal economics, what we call liberal economics right. today, and the 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 theory that uh, that open trade is you know is not just something that um, you know the, the, that that makes people free, but it's also mm. something that that uh, works to make everybody wealthier. That that kind of theory is is uh, it's it, it's in its inf it's in its infancy at at that time, but the the countervailing theory is you know is the theory of the federalists and uh and and then of the you know the 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 american whig party and and uh and after that of the republican party i mean the the uh uh lincoln and grant are 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 pursuing a a an aggressive renewal of hamiltonian economic policies it, it, it's it's not you know it uh, it, it, it's um, the, the idea that that the government has to make sure that it's actively working to uh, to uh, create a su suitable environment for for uh, industry and manufacturing. It's a uh, theory that has a you know it has an extremely long and strong tradition in the United States, and really doesn't. You know, disappear from the Republican Party, you know, un, un, until the 20th century. So, for most of the Republican Party's history, it was the party, uh, you know, obviously not the party of socialism. I mean, nobody right. believes that you need a central <laughs> office where all the geniuses sit and plan the entire economy. That's not what we're talking right. about. But we are talking about, uh, you know, this argument that you, you hear on the right sometimes what are you going to do, pick winners and losers? Well, you know, that's what they did. Yeah. What they did was they, they was they said, um, if we don't have ma manufacturing ability, we're not going to we're not going to be strong, and we're not going to be able to fight wars, and we're going to be a backwater in the end. This country is going to disappear because countries that do have that kind of capability are going to conquer us. So. Um, yeah, so the, the, there is a there's a lot of economic argumentation going on. You know, th throughout American history, is there insufficient concern for you know for issues having to do with religion? Yeah, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm 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 not sure, um, but I, I I can understand that that argument. So I want to move on to ask you a couple questions, kind of about as you view conservatism as a whole, um, and a couple of common critiques that I've heard bandied about about it. So first of all, you in your book, you have a chapter called The Conservative Paradigm, and you begin your paradigm by stating that men are born into families, tribes, and nations to which they are bound by ties of mutual loyalty. And what's interesting to me about that statement is that you don't mention the individual. Uh, you start already with the smallest unit being the family. And I'm wondering uh, what your reasoning was behind that exclusion. And is there somewhere that the individual does fit within your conservative paradigm? Well, I, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by your, your, your interpretation because I, th I thought here, I'll give you my interpretation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought that what I was saying was individuals right. are, are born into families and tribes. Okay. And I see, I see. Um, so, uh, 
No, I think I th I think um, I look. I I I know it's a long book, and some of it's hard reading, and it's going to take people a while to get through it. But you know, let me just tell your 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 listeners that if 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 you really want to get mm -hmm. what's going on in that book, you've got to master chapter three, mm -hmm. which is it's a it, it's a it, it's a very long chapter, and it it provides a, uh, a kind of an alternative uh, anthropology to a lot of what we've been taught, you know, me included, when, when we're going to liberal high school and liberal college and liberal graduate school. Right. And so w one of the, um, the big revisions that, uh, that I put, put in in order to try to understand what, how, conserva how conservatives, uh, people who are traditionalists, people who, uh, who uh, learn their anthropology from the Bible rather than mm -hmm. from Enlightenment, uh, Enlightenment rationalism, I, I I try to make it clear, explicit what it is that's implied in that that kind of tradition, and there's two aspects to the the human individual that that I'm I'm focused on because they don't appear in you know any of the versions of liberalism mm. that I was taught at any stage in my career. Right. So one of them is that that individuals are naturally sticky, that the that the the individual ego naturally and easily expands to to um, to include other members of loyalty groups so mm -hmm. so that members of a family um, naturally feel from you know fr from childhood they feel that if something's hurting their parents children feel like it, it's hurting them and if something makes the, makes their parents happy then they feel like it's it, it makes them happy so th that's that's one aspect of of the human individual that if if you have an intuitive sense of that, mm -hmm. then your whole your your whole sociology and your whole politics is going to be different. The second aspect is that human beings are naturally they are naturally competitive, but not just in you know sort of in the in the, the way that Enlightenment rationalists talk about you know uh, individual self interest and that kind of thing. Um, human beings compete primarily for honor, that is for status, mm -hmm. for standing. If you want to know why uh, husband husbands and wives fight, they fight because they they're they're jostling for uh, being honored more by for being respected more for their partner. And if you want to know why why children bicker all the time, that that bickering is that they're that they're struggling to be the one who gets to make the decisions. They're struggling to be the one who gets praised. They're struggling to be recognized as the one who who can do things best. And so this, this image of the human individual has two almost opposed um, impulses, neither mm -hmm. of which appear in Enlightenment liberalism. One of them, the tendency to form into these strong groups that, you know, that, that can last for decades and, and lifetimes. And the other is the, uh, the internal competition within the group, mm -hmm. inside the group. What happens is, is people are constantly competing for influence and mm. respect and weightiness and, and standing. And the competition, you know, it, it, it really only stops. I mean, it doesn't ever really stop, but, it, but it, you can take a break from the competition when, when a strong family, a strong nation, a strong loyalty group, when it's challenged from the outside or when it faces some kind of, you know, hardship internally, like, I, I, I don't know, like, like, uh, uh, a family member who who is mm -hmm. is very sick, or 
or, or, or you know, is um, having some other kind of hardship. In, in those kinds of situations, a healthy family um, is able to put aside the usual bickering and to act uh, in, in, in the Bible, we have the expression, uh, with one heart. People are able mm -hmm. to act for, for certain bursts of, uh, of struggle and working together almost as though they're, you know, they're a single person that's mm -hmm. exaggerated, but we have that ability. And uh, I, I, th I think if you want to summarize in a sentence, this uh, extremely complicated chapter mm -hmm. three of the book, what I'm saying is that the human individual is not what you think it is. Right. The human individual is something else. It is a creature that craves standing in hierarchy and craves being part of a loyalty group. And in that, there's both individual self-expression and competition and, and, and being your own person and the being sub subsumed for certain periods of time with, within a, mm. uh, uh, in a positive joint effort by, by the group. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a really good point because so much of the, uh, yeah, like the, what you call enlightenment liberalism thought as a whole is predicated on just a vastly different conception of human nature than what the Bible posits. And people sort of act like you can put that to the side and move on to the political implications. But it's true that the ideas of human nature and whether humans are good or evil, I think probably do kind of trickle down and have a big impact in other elements of, of that political thought. And if we're going to, you know, talk intelligently about, yeah. you know, what's happening to the United States, yeah. you know, which is, which is blowing apart because of, of, you know, a, 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 an inability on, on, you know, on both on the, on the left and on the right and uh, a joint inability yeah. to, uh, to think in terms of national cohesion, to think, what do I need to contribute to this? What, do, you know, what what can I do to 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 mm. prevent a national divorce or a civil war? Mm. You know, pe people feel that it's coming, but I don't think that they really focus on what would need to be done in order to avoid it. I don't, I don't know if they're willing to to focus, but at, at least I think we need that language. We need to, to be able to see the possibility before we reject it. So one other critique that I've heard about your book um, is that, so at least the way that the Enlightenment taught was taught in my school and probably many other American schools, which is very simplistic, but bear with me, is that uh, like our current methods of intellectual and scientific inquiry all date from the Enlightenment and from rationalism. And if that's true, then it's difficult to critique Enlightenment liberalism without, to some extent, using its own methods. Uh, do you feel that that in any way that's the case? Do, does our current method of inquiry actually date from the Enlightenment? No, I I, th I think I think that's that's uh, rational Enlightenment rationalist propaganda. <laughs> and no, no, I'm 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 serious. It's it's people like Kant. I mean, we, mm. we need to understand in, when when Kant writes. I mean, he, he's he's the most famous person who wrote, you know, explicitly wrote mm -hmm. an essay called What is Enlightenment? Right. So, so he's the most famous Enlightenment ideologue. There are, there are plenty of others. Right. But I, when, when, when Kant is talking about reason, he's not talking about the kind of thing that, you know, most normal people think, you know, mm -hmm. being reasonable, thinking things through, using evidence, 
um, empiricism, trial and error, uh, trying a theory and then seeing whether it can be confirmed or disconfirmed. Right. None of that is what Kant is talking about. Hmm. Kant is a rationalist. It's very hard for people to understand this. For him, Newtonian science is not a science. Hmm. He, he, his, 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 he, wrote a, he, he wrote an essay on trying to demonstrate, to, to, to use true science, which is prove, pure reason to deduce from, from zero uh, New, Newton's, uh, uh, Newton's laws of motion. And he believes that, that Newton's laws of motion, because Newton derived them empirically, so it's not real science, because it wasn't based on, it was, it, it was based on experience instead of pure reason. People in our time who have grown up with, the, the, with Newton as kind of the, he's like the, the best case of successful science and reasoning that we have. And so it's very hard for us to imagine New, the, the opponents of Newtonianism, the, 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 the rationalists descended mm -hmm. from Descartes and, and, and through Leibniz and, and Kant, their opposition to the idea that experience is actually the foundation of, of all of our knowledge. Mm -hmm. they, they just didn't want to accept that. So now let, let's talk a second about the, the pioneers of this, uh, this kind of empiricist view of the world. Uh, the, the the Scottish Enlightenment, the empirical side of what you know what's called. I mean, they didn't call themselves the Enlightenment, but today people talk about the Scottish right. Enlightenment, and the, those Scots mm. who who were uh, developing sociology and economics and psychology and like all, all of the social sciences were 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 uh, getting started in that Scottish movement. They, what they are doing is they're taking English common law empiricism. Which is based on trial and error, and they and 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 then they look at what uh, what uh, Newton and Boyle and Harvey what mm. what what these great English scientists were able to do with empiricism, and they say, okay, let's let's try to apply that to a science of man, and so the, the what what is called the Scottish Enlightenment is is actually an extension of mm. traditional English empiricism. And traditional English empiricism is the theory that says, how do we know that, uh, how do we repair a constitution? We, we have to take, take uh, 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 propose a limited, a, a, a limited fix to deal with a limited problem because you can't predict in advance if you make a very large theoretical fix for, for a constitution, you have no idea what you're gonna destroy. So you have to, by trial and error, to try to impose a small fix and then see how it goes and then test it. Mm. Edmund Burke is the guy who is writing about politics and saying, saying each nation is an experiment. Political science is, a, is, uh, is, uh, is the experiment, mm. is conducting experiments on nations and we advance by trial and error. That, that's it. I, so I, I think the, the, the brief answer to your question is that I think that the, uh, the Anglo-Scottish tradition, which is the, mo the, the, the main inheritance in the United States, is pro-experience, it's pro-tradition, mm -hmm. and it's also pro-experimental mm -hmm. science, which is, uh, which is an outgrowth of, uh, of this kind of uh, English legal 
thinking and traditionalism. That is really interesting. I definitely was not taught that when they were teaching me Kant in school. <laughs> but, 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 but you know that Hayek, Hayek is, um, is a, a traditionalist mm. in theory. Mm. So in, in practice, he comes out, you know, he, he usually comes up being, mm. you know, pretty radical in, in, in the, in the liberal direction. But if you, uh, if you read his uh, theory mm. of knowledge and his history of science and his hi history of the development of, uh, of, of the common law, he sounds like me. <laughs> Interesting. Hmm. Or I sound like, I sound like, yeah. <laughs> I guess that that leads into another question that a lot of people bandy out about, about this kind of thinking, because there is definitely a conception that more traditionalist conservatism is like anti-change completely. Um, is, is that valid? Is that true? Or is there some kind of metric by which we can decide when change is helpful and when it's not? Well, th those are two different questions. For, for, first of all, hmm. um, the, the Anglo-American tradition is not, uh, not against change. Um, th hmm. There are exceptions. Um, um, Michael Oakeshott is an exception. Michael Oakeshott, right. really, when, right. you, when you read him, you really get the feeling that he just thinks that you know, what is, is good. But that that's that's not traditional Anglo-American conservatism. The, the Anglo-American conservative tradition uh, that that I'm that that I'm describing in my book, uh, where where you know mm. the great thinkers were uh, Selden and Hale and and right. and, and Burke and th that that tradition is explicit that that change occurs constantly. So when you have something good it decays and that's inevitable. And the, the, so the question for the conservative is, is not, you know, do right. we support change or not? The, the question for the conservative right. is change is inevitable. And the question is, what do you do about it? Is, is there any way that, that, that you can avoid having change just take something good and just destroy it in time? Mm. That, that, that's the big challenge. And what, the, what they're struggling to do is to, is to develop principles for figuring out what kind what kind of uh, restoration can you do right restoration is the most you know it is one of the most important words in this tradition mm -hmm. it's um it, it it's the uh, the the view of Selden's Selden's students um Hale and Clarendon who uh were involved in uh re-establishing the English monarchy after mm. decades of civil war and 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 uh, and the republic under Cromwell, and what what they're learning from this is a um, is that there are moments of crisis where where you can tell that everything's failed, and so th this goes to your you can this goes to your your yardstick question. Mm. How, how can you tell that th right. something has failed? Well, look, I mean, there there so, some things are just obvious. If people don't stop killing each other. And right. if people are starving, uh, if if foreign invaders are are you know having success in taking over your land, then you know that that what you've done has failed. Um, right. And so other other examples of you know what impresses them as failure is is for example the uh, Cromwell's Republic is is unable to create a stable a, a stable legal structure. They, they 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 write one constitution after another. They keep trying. You know, it, it's like the Articles of the Confederation. You, you you try it, but it turns out that 
that people can't live by it. And if they try to live by it, then, then, then you, you can't raise taxes, you can't have an army, you can't fight wars, you can't keep basic morality, you can't keep people healthy. So right. when you see that, you got to fix something. And, and that, which is, yeah. you know, which is where we are too. So I feel I would be remiss if I did not ask you a little bit about Ronald Reagan, because it seems like conservatives of essentially every generation above my own <laughs> really put Reagan on a pedestal and have a real desire to return almost as exactly as possible to Reagan or have another Reagan. Um, and the general desire to return, I think you would probably say, is, a, is sometimes a, you know, is a good instinct. Um, but do you think that this is the right instinct being applied in the wrong era? And do you think, uh, do you think that Reagan's legacy, it just seems the way the battle lines have been drawn is that it's really kind of the, the classical liberals who have taken up the flag of Reagan and the nationalist conservatives who level critiques of Reagan. Do you think that that, that that's correct? Do you think that we should return to Reagan? That, that's a good question. It's complicated. I mean, it's very difficult for, um, I, I have a, at the end of the book, I have, I, I have a, a discussion of Reagan and I, yeah. um, when, when my friends and I were in college, uh, Reagan and Thatcher, they were our heroes and, and uh, Pope John Paul II. And um, it's a little bit, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's difficult for people who, who didn't live through that time uh, to understand exactly what it meant, it, it certainly did not mean, um, you know, the the kind of um, w- worldwide worldwide liberalism uh, take right. a, take over the world and impose libertarianism, which is today associated with both Reagan and Thatcher. I, I you know, look, we when I was in college, when we were founding the Princeton Tory, and we were you know like advocating. Um, uh, Reagan and, and and reading people like um, like 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 Irving Kristol, who was kind of like the the main uh, strategist for, for you know d- during those years, he was kind of like the the, the leading thinker associated with uh, with Reaganism. None of us thought that yeah. Reagan and Thatcher stood for libertarianism. Right. I mean, it, it was look we we knew libertarians. We had friends in college with lots of friends who were Ayn Rand. People. Right. There were lots of objectivists, and in those days, the objectivists, the Ayn Rand supporters, they knew that they weren't conservatives, mm. and they said so. And we knew that they weren't conservatives, and we said so. Mm. I mean, there, there was a there was a big gap between being a, a a conservative Reagan supporter and being a libertarian, and that gap it's best expressed by uh, by rereading Irving Kristol. Irving Kristol believed in to, had a book called Two Cheers for Capitalism. Right. And when, when he described, so why, why not three cheers? He certainly, certainly admitted that, uh, that, that Milton Friedman or Hayek were right, that, 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 that the, the, the market economy is the best engine for economic growth. He certainly believed in that. But the, the problem is that, uh, that for, for Crystal, uh, like for George Will in those days, and 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 you know for the mainstream of of of, uh, of the Reagan Republican Party, the 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 nation and nationalism was absolutely central 
I, I mean, you know, the idea of a new world order where, where, you know, one law is imposed on the globe, that's, yeah. that's Bush era stuff. That's, right. that's made John Major, you, you, you never heard of anything like this from, from Reagan or Thatcher. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and, and the, you know, the, the idea that, that you're a Reagan support, uh, you, that you're, um, that you're a Reaganist because you mm. support wars to bring uh, to send American troops into the Middle East to, to 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 bring democracy to countries by by force of bayonets. I, I mean, what are they talking about? Reagan never did anything like that. Nothing. I mean, it, it, the, the the biggest the biggest American military operation during the Reagan years was was the, the uh, taking over Grenada. It was a it was a one week operation with you yeah. know, twenty five casualties or something. I mean, it's just they they don't remember they don't remember mm. that reagan came to power um through a coalition with uh figures like billy graham and jerry falwell um and and he didn't it wasn't like a oh we have no choice he yeah. he embraced this uh this public christianity he defended in every election campaign the the democrats were saying no you should it's not legitimate to have to to have religion in the in, in in politics and and Reagan was saying what are you talking about but religion is the source of our politics it's the foundation of our politics and his when 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 he proposes a constitutional amendment to put prayer back in the schools in the United States so the the left was saying the same kinds of things that they say you know about natcons today they were saying right this is the reign of the ayatollahs and our, <laughs> and our, our, our 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 country has had separation of church and state since you know 400 bc and you know all of that yeah that that talk was directed against reagan because he mm. was seen as being you know the guy who today they would call him an integralist he's trying to bring you know right. religious religious values and principles into the into American law and constitutionalism. So I, I, I just look, people just cannot remember, they can't mm. remember what it was like to have a, a conservative leader who was perched at the exact midpoint of a coalition right. that had, you know, both powerful um, Christian and religious aspects to it, which he believed in, and right. nationalism, which he believed in, and 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 supported, and was emotionally committed to. You know, like like the Catholic nationalism of the poles, right? Right, and um, and on the other hand, you know, bring, bringing in you know the 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 more individual liberty kind of people into into a winning coalition, and and all of it, you know, with uh, with a great sense of humor. And no obnoxious tweeting, you know, savaging people all the right. time, it was was a very great man, and uh, I I think uh, all of us, regardless of exactly how much we uh, agree with him, I think all of us could could stand to learn from you know from his brand of politics, from you know what it means to to be classy mm -hmm. and to nevertheless you know fight for crucial principles that that that, that make you unpopular and hated. Yoram, that's really interesting. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. I know that we're pretty much at time, but if it's okay with you, I don't, will you permit me one final question about the conclusion of your book? Okay, we'll do. 
Um, so your vision is really appealing. Your vision of religion in America is really appealing to me as someone who is religious. Uh, but the polling trends are unfortunately not on our side, uh, particularly for Gen Z and below. Uh, and as a Christian, the most obvious solution is to go out and make converts. Uh, but you're a Jew, and Judaism obviously has very different attitudes toward that kind of approach. So what do you think is the way forward? And is there any kind of hope for this vision if Gen Z grows up and does not have kind of a great awakening moment? I, I do not. I don't see a lot of hope without without yeah. some kind of religious revival. I, I don't I don't necessarily think that religious revival on, only takes place from the grassroots yeah. up. I think that that that's really unrealistic. Yeah, I, I think realistically, when Donald Trump was president, the way he talked, what he talked about, what he thought about had a, a vast mm -hmm. impact on t tens of millions of people who yeah. swung around to, uh, to, to thinking like him and to acting like him. And yeah. the same thing happened with Barack Obama, that, yeah. that, that the, the human beings, we don't like to think, we like to think we're thinking for ourselves, but, yeah. but the, the reality is that the president of the United States, his family, the, 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 the main figures in the government, the main figures in public life, they have a, a, a tremendous impact on how individuals think and how individuals act yeah. with, without legislation, ju just by being who they are and projecting yeah. who they are. And, uh, and, and so I think, I think that when we're thinking about the possibility of, of religious restoration, I mean, first of all, from, from the perspective of, you know, of a religious person and a Bible believing person, yeah. um, I, I think we do need, we, we need to understand that um, we don't know whether this is Sodom and God is about to just wipe, wipe it out or whether it's Nineveh in the book of Jonah, right. what, whether right. it's the, um, you know, this this terrible evil empire, which nonetheless repents. Hmm. Okay, we 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 don't know. We we don't know what's going to happen. Where we are is completely uncharted territory. The degree of the 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 decay and the collapse and how frightening and obvious uh, the the um, the tyranny that's coming is. It is for sure shaking people up, and I. I, I think this this kind of circumstance, and you know, add to that the the rapid rise of China, which at the yeah. moment that looks really bad. Yeah. And so this this is as deep as a crisis gets. You know, be, before the you know before the actual shooting starts, and this is the kind of time that makes people rethink their lives, and yeah. they don't necessarily just do it. You know, one by one, they they do it because suddenly there's 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 a movement, and 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 you can you can feel a new spirit, and uh, and it affects you, it changes you, so it is possible. I I mean I'm not placing any bets here. Uh, yeah. We have to do. We have no choice. We have to do absolutely everything we can to bring, you know, to 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 bring that return return to return to scripture and return to God. We have to do everything we can, and uh, and if you know if God thinks we deserve it. Then, then he's going to help us and, and prosper our way. That is a fantastic note to end on. I really, really appreciate you taking the time, Yoram. I've learned a lot from this conversation. It's been really, really interesting. Sure. My, my, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. 
Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Dr. Yoram Kozoni on what conservatism is, the Enlightenment, and the founding. Our website, as always, is jmp.princeton.edu. Our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to press follow and, if the spirit moves, give us a review. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to see you next time here on Madison's Notes.